Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, now a professor at the College of William and Mary. Colonel Wilkerson, welcome to Pushback. Good to be back with you, Aaron. Wanted to get your take on Joe Biden's cabinet picks, especially in the uh, foreign policy field. Let's start with Defense Secretary uh, General Lloyd Austin. Misgivings among some Democrats that um, and and Republicans that uh, for the second time in a row a incoming president has picked somebody from the military who will require a waiver. What is your take on this issue of another former general being appointed to run the Pentagon and this question of civilian leadership? I don't know the general at all. He could be the most reputable person on the face of the earth, and I'd still say what I'm going to say which is that in a nation of 200 million adult souls that pretends to be a liberal democracy, it's rather astonishing that for the second time in a row, we can't find a civilian to be the Secretary of Defense. One of the postulates, as it were, that was created by people like James Forrestal and Ferdinand Eberstadt, I'm thinking of all the people who were there at the creation, if you will, of the 1947 National Security Act. And as a part of that, the defense establishment then later turned into the, the Secretary of Defense, an actual civilian over that apparatus, principally at that time for budget purposes and budget control, because Truman in particular was concerned about that. Whoa, would Truman be concerned today? Uh, eight, nine billion dollar budget has turned into almost a trillion dollar budget. Uh, but that was the reason civilians were supposed to be in there. And to argue that the president's a civilian, uh, is a civilian, and to argue that there are other civilians involved is really to miss the point. The man who heads the most powerful cabinet department in the United States government most powerful in terms of what he can do to the rest of the world with nuclear weapons, with the military in general, but most powerful too in the sense that he takes more money from the federal budget than anyone else by a large proportion, has to be a military officer is really kind of preposterous. He also was a member of the board at uh, Raytheon, a major weapons manufacturer, which seems par for the course amongst pretty much anyone who's ever nominated for this job. But let me give you the contrary argument, which is that some people say that maybe it's better to have a former military officer in charge of the Pentagon because at least he's not a chicken hawk. A civilian who's never been to war doesn't know what it's like. And sometimes these civilians feel compelled to prove their so-called muscular bona fides and, and recommend military action that perhaps an experienced military official might not be inclined to get behind? Well, I buy that argument to a certain extent, at least, if we were talking about the president um, and if we were talking about some of the other positions in the federal bureaucracy that have a lot to do with the use of the military establishment. But when we're talking about the Secretary of Defense, we're really talking about that position which was created expressly to be a civilian position and we may recall that even George Marshall, with all the credentials that he had, all the favorability ratings he had, all the respect he had, 
had to do the waiver business and it was originally set up for 10 years. 10 years you had to be out of uniform before uh, you could serve in this position. We've now, I think, moved it down to seven and then to five. Um, but even George Marshall was somewhat uh, uh, contested at the time that he was made Secretary of Defense. I just think it's a position that the National Security Act created for the express purpose of putting Mufti, a civilian uniform, if you will, over that establishment, which was going to be the most powerful and the most significant uh, by any stretch of the imagination in America's future. Um, Eisenhower said it best, uh, back to your remark about going through the revolving door, which every flag officer seems to do today, to be in the military industrial complex and to make six and seven figure salaries. Um, it's not the thing you want. It's simply not the thing you want, particularly if you want to remain even aspirational, uh, a liberal federal democratic republic. You, know, you, you can't have this. This, this is how you get endless war. This is how you get um, $750 billion plus defense budgets. This is how you get a situation that OMB and CBO have both pointed out is going to, within a decade, at just moderate rates of increase, eliminate all discretionary federal spending. Because all you're going to be able to do is, on the one hand, the fixed payments, on the other hand, the defense budget, and there'll be no other discretionary spending from the federal government because that's how badly we are uh, utilizing the economic structure of our country right now. Not to even mention the 22, 23 headed for $24 trillion aggregate debt and the huge amounts we're adding to that debt annually. This business of modern monetary theory and that not being a real problem that we can continue to do that endlessly is another preposterous calculation that some of these people who now run the economics of this country in a way that uh, is really frightening if you sit back and think about it. I want to read you uh, from a recent piece in Foreign Policy by Mark Perry, who is a senior analyst at the Quincy Institute, also an author of many books. And he seems to be supportive of Austin's nomination and seems to think that he will be more anti-interventionist than other defense secretaries. This is what Mark Perry writes, quote, Lloyd was enraged by the Saudi intervention in Yemen, a senior officer who worked with Austin at CENTCOM said, because we were quietly supporting the Houthi fight against Al-Qaeda at the time. Austin was so angered by the Saudi move, this now retired officer said, that he considered formally requesting that the Obama administration denounce the intervention, the Saudi intervention in Yemen, or more accurately described as the Saudi mass murder campaign in Yemen. What do you make of that, Colonel Wilkerson? If all that is true, it's laudable, but I would ask the question, as I've asked the question repeatedly of general officers, admirals in the Navy and so forth, over the last decade or two, when are they going to resign? When are they going to say, that's so bad, I resign. I cannot be a part of this policy. I cannot be a subscriber to this policy because by remaining on service, in service, they are being subscribers to and advocates of that philosophy. philosophy. When are they going to resign? When are they going to stand up and say, I'm sick of this war in Afghanistan? I'm sick of this 
presence in Syria. I'm sick of this presence in Iraq. I'm disturbed by the president's policy with regard to Venezuela or wherever it might be. And I'm quitting. I'm resigning in protest. Where are these people? No, they stay in. They then go through the revolving door to Raytheon or Lockheed Martin or Boeing or some other defense contractor, and they make a fortune. This, this has become the way we do business in America today. But you've seen up close, I imagine, how this is rationalized. You think if you can stay in, you can make a difference and steer policy in a less destructive direction. I mean, your boss, Colin Powell, he didn't resign before the Iraq war when he could have. He also didn't go out and take a six, seven figure job with the defense industry. And in fact said that that would be the last possible thing for him to do. I'm not trying to defend him in that regard, but I am saying that he did not do that. Um, you've got a point, but the point only goes so far. Just because Colin Powell didn't do it, and I work for Colin Powell, doesn't mean that others shouldn't do it. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have someone stand up in the military and say, we haven't won a war since World War II. Not really. You know, you look at the first Gulf War and you can say, well, all Norm did, Norm Schwarzkopf, the general in charge at the time, was sign a ceasefire agreement in the desert. And then we went on and started the war again in 2003, and I would maintain lost it rather badly. The situation in the Levant right now, indeed in the region, in North Africa and other areas of Africa right now is exacerbated and made far worse by what we did in 2003, what the powers that we unleashed in 2003. So, you know, you can say all day long that these people are efficient, effective, and competent, and so forth and so on. I don't see the signs of that. And I'm speaking out against it. What do you make of Anthony Blinken, uh, Biden's choice for Secretary of State? He was a very vocal supporter of things like the Saudi attack on Yemen and also a greater U.S. involvement in the Syria proxy war. I don't have too much truck. I don't hold too much truck for any of the people that are being appointed right now who have some sort of influence on or are principles in what I would call the national security uh, world, the national security elite of the Biden administration. Um, you know, people have said to me, well, you didn't like Trump and you didn't like that gang. You're darn right I didn't like Trump and I didn't like that gang. Um, but I don't see that there's been a lot of change or going to be a lot of change with the Biden administration in terms of national security. And what I see is calm, I see peacefulness, I see serenity and all those things that people have been longing for, all those things that Trump disturbed so abruptly returning. I see our allies coming back, I see our, our alliances possibly being uh, reaffirmed and made a bit stronger. I see um, a number of things happening in the world that will be positive. But I don't see a different kind of administration being formed. One, for example, that might have been formed around Bernie Sanders had he been the uh, winner rather than Joe Biden. I don't see that happening. And it disturbs me because it just means more of the same, with a little more calmness and a little more serenity, um, which lulls everyone into thinking that things are better when in fact they're not. What do you do you make anything of the fact that Susan Rice, who was a, a, sort of a face of this interventionist approach of the 
Obama administration, the you know disaster in Libya, also in Syria as well, that she was not appointed to a foreign policy position. She was given the the uh, domestic policy job. Do you see that as a sign, perhaps, that, that Biden is trying to send send a signal that he will move away from the interventionist policies of both his administration and also Trump's? I think it is an encouraging sign in this sense. I think Biden recognizes that at least 50%, if not much more than that, of his challenge, particularly in the first six months, the first year, if you will, possibly, of his administration is going to be domestic, not foreign. Setting the foreign policy of the United States back on some sort of even keel will be a minor task compared to domestic policy. Let's face it, we had 80 million or so people vote for the other candidate, and the other candidate is a serial liar, a narcissist, uh, a person who uh, treated the evangelicals who are just manifest now in this country. I think the census is going to show 100 million of them. The third great awakening is happening, even as I speak. Um, he he really turned this country into what it was going to anyway, but he exacerbated it in his four years so dramatically that Biden is going to have a tremendous problem, if not the key challenge of his administration in bringing this country into some kind of unity again. And that's across the board, whatever issue you want to touch that's domestic. So I see that preoccupying him. I see that being his major challenge. These other things will fall in place, I think, fairly automatically. The allies are probably acting right now, as, for example, the Pentagon did when uh, you had uh, Gates come in as Secretary of Defense after Rumsfeld. I mean, Gates walked up the river entrance steps to the Pentagon and automatically walked into a great situation because Rumsfeld had left. The military had grown to hate Donald Rumsfeld, loathe him. And so Gates had not much of a task. Well, that's probably going to be the way foreign policy is for at least a year or two with Biden, because our allies and others will be so relieved to see someone who's calm, serene, and halfway uh, uh, decent in terms of the way he exercises U.S. power diplomatically and otherwise. But the domestic situation, the domestic situation is going to eat Biden's lunch. So taking someone like Susan Rice, who knows about government, knows the inside and outside of governing, and putting her in a position where she can be responsible for orchestrating coordination, for example, between the NSC on the one hand, Security Council, and the National Economic Council, and the Council of Economic Advisors, and so forth on the other, and to handle a lot of these domestic issues is quite a compliment to her. And it's going to be an enormous challenge for her. As I said, it is going to be for the president. These are going to be the issues that are going to dominate Biden's first four years, that he can even bring the country back together again in a in a small way will be a miracle. When John Bolton was kicked out as Trump's national security advisor, I recall speaking to you and you expressing some hope that uh, a retired colonel named Douglas McGregor was being reportedly considered for the job. He didn't get it. Uh, but now on his way out, Trump has uh, installed McGregor to a, a senior policy advisor position at the Pentagon. I wonder if you make anything of, of that move. The entire charade, if you will, of putting all these people in at the last minute 
reminded me of Dick Cheney and putting some 1,800 people who had been political appointees, Schedule Cs, into the civil service and elsewhere so that they could stay around, be very difficult to fire, and haunt the incoming president, in this case, Barack Obama. Donald Trump, from what I've seen, I don't have the figures yet, but uh, Cheney's was over 1,800 individuals. Um, from what I know of Trump and what I've seen of Trump uh, and the people around him, like Miller and others, they probably are doing similar things. So it will be a problem for Biden trying to ferret these people out. It's what presidents do when they leave to try and leave a modicum of their own policies intact within the federal structure, but not to the extent that Cheney did it, and I suspect the, the extent that uh, Trump is going to do it. So well, there are going to be a lot of problems for Biden in that respect, too, because in places like OFAC, the Office of Financial Assets Control, where sanctions are basically implemented, and now we're sanctioning a quarter of the world, um, and other places like that, there are going to be holdovers. There are going to be people around. McGregor, though, I would, to answer your question specifically with regard to Doug, I would say is a, is a decent plant in the Pentagon, if you will. And if he hangs around, I would not be displeased at that because Doug is very much opposed to these endless stupid wars, uh, very outspoken on it, um, and has uh, the credentials to be intellectually and otherwise to be influential in whatever advice he might give to whoever in the Pentagon. So I wouldn't even mind if Doug stayed around post-Trump. Uh, post and Trump, meanwhile, has been talking about withdrawing troops. He's bragged about it for a long time while seemingly never really actually doing anything concrete and also just recently approving it seems of the israeli assassination of an iranian nuclear scientist a huge provocation what do you expect for trump's last month in office and and what are your main areas of concern god only knows aaron um this man surprises me every time he turns around with his narcissism with his uh utter incapacity to govern reasonably well. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic being the most prominent example right now, looking at the New York Times this morning, we're once again leading the world in almost every category that's bad with regard to the pandemic. Um, so I, 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 I just can't even imagine what Trump might do between now and then. I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that in places where he might do it, they are battened down, if you will. They, they, they've closed the hatches, so to speak, uh, in Tehran and Caracas and elsewhere where Trump might hurl some lightning bolts at the last minute. And I think the military's hunkered down too to oppose anything like that. So I think it's gonna be difficult for him to do, but not impossible. So I'm, I'm concerned about what he might do between now and noon on 20 January when the new president is sworn in. And finally, I wanted to get your reaction, if you saw it, uh, to the comments of James Jeffrey, the uh, recently departed envoy to the uh, anti-ISIS coalition in the Middle East, where Jeffrey basically said that the State Department misled the White House under Jeffrey's watch on the troop levels in Syria, gave them a lower figure than was actually there in Syria, um, occupying the bread pass the breadbasket of Syria, and uh, and also an area where of that has a serious major oil reserves in a bid to basically keep Syria poor and divided. And Jeffrey basically bragged about misleading the White House and the public about how many U.S. troops are actually there. Did you see those comments? And what do you make of them? 
Well, I've seen comments like that, and I, I saw some of that reported. I didn't see the direct comments, but it's a case in point that uh, when you have a military that is spread over 800 foreign bases in the world, and by the way, the rest of the world, including Russia and China, probably has a total of 79 or 80 bases, 800 for us. When you have a military that's spread all over the Levant and North Africa, for example, to the tune of probably somewhere at any given week or month, uh, over 30 to 50,000 private contractors, and then add on to that the contractors that come from the country or the countries surrounding the area where they are. And you have the largest Air Force base in the world at Al-Udeed in Qatar, uh, probably the second largest uh, in Saudi Arabia. You have the largest naval fleet headquarters in Bahrain. You have the largest reception facility manned daily in Kuwait for military troops. When you have the military, the United States military spread all over that region, and then think about the other places we are too, like Korea and so forth. Um, I don't know how the Pen Pentagon can't audit itself, Aaron. It can't tell the American people the amount of money it wastes every year, which is in the billions. It can't tell its own contractors. It can't tell its own leadership, its own budget offices, how much it has left over every year that it doesn't spend or how much it actually spent. When you have a military like that, how could they ever possibly be expected to report to the president accurately on anything? Troop numbers, dollars spent, ships at sea or whatever. Uh, it, it's simply too huge, it's too imperial. It's too much like ancient Rome, for example. Imagine Caesar asking, uh, who's in France now? Who's on the British Isles and so forth? I dare say that Caesar probably got a better answer than any US president would get today. Well, Lawrence Wilkerson, I always appreciate your answers and your time. So thank you very much. Lawrence Wilkerson, the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, now a professor at the College of William and Mary. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric.